Well, even though it happened nearly 20 years ago, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. I was 20 years old at the time. I had just gotten married. I was a, a sophomore in college and I was working at, at Kroger. I was actually a, a cashier at Kroger and usually whenever I worked my shift, whenever I, I would work my register, the person who would bag groceries for me at the end of the register was a young lady named Whitney. Her name was Whitney Lampkin. You see, Whitney was a, a little bit younger than me, but she was also a, a very religious person. She wasn't a, a, a Christian in the biblical sense, but she was still a, a good person. She was still a moral person. She was still someone who believed in God and, and she believed in Jesus and she believed in the Bible. In fact, on many occasions between customers, when we worked together, we would, we would have discussions about, about the Bible. We would have discussions about, about Jesus and about religion. And please keep in mind that all of this was happening during a time when I wasn't even thinking about being a preacher. I wasn't even thinking about or considering being an evangelist at, at, at that time. I was actually going to school to be a news anchorman or, or a sports broadcaster. That's what, I wanted, that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wasn't even thinking about being a preacher at that time, but I was a Christian. I was a disciple. I was a, a follower of Jesus. And, and I would just have these, these religious discussions with, with Whitney almost every single day. Almost every single day at work, we would find a way to talk about Jesus and, and talk about the Bible. And, and I knew that Whitney was, was wrong in, in much of the stuff she was saying. I knew that she wasn't really right with God, even though she felt that she was right with God. And, and that really bothered me. That really ate away at me. And so one day I, I went home and I talked to my wife, Gigi, about the matter. I told her about Whitney and about these discussions we were having about religion. And, and we decided that, that we needed to do something to help her. We decided that we needed to step up and, and, and help teach her the truth. We needed to help her understand what the true will of God was for her life. And so that, that's what we did. For, for several weeks, we met with her in our apartment. And we had Bible studies with her and we brought her with us to to several church services. And by the end of a few weeks to the glory of God. I was blessed to baptize her into Christ. I was blessed to immerse her into the body of Christ. In fact, Whitney would be the first person that I will be blessed to immerse into the body of Christ. Whitney would be the first person that I would be blessed to have a small part in helping come to the Lord. And I'm happy to tell you that to this day, She's still serving Jesus. 
She's still walking in the truth. She's still striving to be a true worshiper of God. And she's trying to raise her children to do the same thing. Whitney became a Christian nearly 20 years ago. And I still remember that day vividly because in addition to Whitney on that day, I also experienced one of the greatest feelings of my life. On that day, I also experienced a great level of joy and deep satisfaction. Let me tell you something. There is just an indescribable joy that is attached with helping someone come to the Lord. There is just an indescribable happiness that is attached with knowing that you played a part in helping someone come. To the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let me just ask you this morning, have you ever felt that before? You ever felt that joy before? You ever felt that happiness before in your own life? Have you ever felt the joy and the happiness that is attached with helping someone come to Jesus? If not, then let me ask you this now. Why not? Why have you never experienced that before? Why have you never felt that joy or, or that happiness before? Why have you robbed yourself of gaining access to a joy that, that is indescribable? Is it because of fear? Is it because of misunderstandings that you may have about the work of evangelism? Is it because of intimidation? Is it because you are intimidated by things that you believe are attached with the work of evangelism? You know what? I'm going to tell you all something. I'm going to be honest with you. This PowerPoint thing don't like me very much anymore, and I don't like it very much anymore. So I'm not even going to mess with it anymore. Let's just get your notes out. We're going to have to do this old school. Are you intimidated this morning? Are you intimidated by, by a lack of experience? You're intimidated by a lack of experience. Are you someone this morning who's a new convert? Are you a babe in Christ? Or are you someone who has been a Christian for very long and you just feel that you can't get involved in the work of soul winning? You just feel that the work of soul winning is just not for you. You just feel that, that that kind of work, the work of evangelism, the work of soul winning, that has to be reserved for people who are seasoned in the faith. That's got to be reserved for elders and, and for deacons and for preachers and for Bible class teachers. You someone who believes that? Well, if so, then I want you to go in your Bible back to John chapter 4. Will you go back in your Bible to John chapter 4 this morning? And I want to start reading with verse number 28. And John chapter 4 and verse number 28. Here, in the context of these verses, and remember I told you on Wednesday, I told you on the Wednesday that we were going to be coming back to John chapter 4. Remember in John chapter 4, we find this Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at a well. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he encounters this woman at a well. In fact, not only does he encounter this woman, but he radically sparks up a, a conversation with her. 
He talks with her about living water and about worship that pleases God. And he even talks with her and tells her about about the fact that he knew that she had been married five times before. And the man that she currently was with was not her husband. Jesus knew intimate things about her, personal things about her that he could not have known unless he came from God because this was the first time they had ever met personally. And so once that takes place, once Jesus tells this, this intimate information about, about her, in verse number 28, it says, So the woman left her water pot, and she went into the city, and she said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city, and they were coming. They were coming to him. So notice what's going on here in these verses. I want you to notice how right after, right after this Samaritan woman was converted by Jesus, notice how the first thing she did was she immediately, she immediately went back to her city. She immediately went back to her countrymen. She immediately went back to the people that she knew and that she interacted with on a daily basis. Thank you, Jason. So it, it was me, looks like it. Uh, she went back to the people that she interacted with on a daily basis, and she told them what? She told them what she knew about Jesus. She told them what she believed about Jesus. She told them about what Jesus had done for her in her life. Notice how this woman engages in evangelism right after she's converted. Do you see that? She engages in evangelism right after she's converted and she becomes a believer. Her example teaches us something. It teaches us, brothers and sisters, that one doesn't have to be converted for a very long time before they start trying to win souls for the glory of God. They teach us that you can be converted for a mere few hours and you can be very effective in telling other people about Jesus Christ. This woman teaches us that we don't have to be intimidated when it comes to evangelism because of a lack of experience. And you know what else we don't need to be intimidated by? We also need to be intimidated by a lack of Bible knowledge. We also need to be intimidated by what we perceive to be a lack of deep Bible knowledge. You know, maybe you're the kind of person this morning who says, well, you know what, Sean? I want to be involved in evangelism. I want to be involved in sharing the truth of my faith with other people, but, but I just don't know enough. I just don't know much, much about the Bible. I, I, I just don't have enough Bible knowledge. I, I need to wait until I learn some more. I need to learn more about King David. And I need to learn more about, about Abraham and about Ezekiel. And I need to wait until we at least finish the, the book of Revelation. Maybe you are intimidated by evangelism because you say you don't have a lot of deep Bible knowledge. If that describes you this morning, let me say a few things about that, okay? First, let me tell you that 20 years ago, 20 years ago when I first met Whitney, I didn't have a lot of deep Bible knowledge at all. My dear friends, 20 years ago when I first met Whitney, I couldn't even tell you who King David was. 
I couldn't tell you who Ezekiel was. I couldn't tell you who Daniel was. I couldn't tell you three things about Abraham, let alone the three promises made to Abraham. I didn't know anything about the prophets. I didn't know anything about the book of Zechariah or the book of Revelation. All I knew 20 years ago was what the Bible taught about Jesus and what a person must do to get their soul right with him. That is all I knew 20 years ago. But let me tell you something. Whitney didn't even know that. Whitney didn't even have the little bit of Bible knowledge that I did. And that's usually how it goes, right? I mean, usually the people we are studying with who are not Christians, don't have a lot of Bible knowledge. In fact, that's one of the main reasons why they're not Christians in the first place. You see, like Whitney, even though the folks we talk with may be religious, even though they may be part of a church somewhere, they probably still don't know the truth about baptism or about faith that pleases God, or about the Lord's church, or about worship that pleases God, or about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You see, unfortunately, we are currently living in a biblically illiterate society. We're living in a society where for so many people, they don't read the Bible, they don't study the Bible, they couldn't tell you what the first book of the Bible was or the last book of the Bible was. They need us to help them. They need us to help them. And so because we live in a culture when so many people are not reading the Bible and don't understand important Bible concepts, especially about Jesus, we don't need to be intimidated by what we perceive to be a lack of deep Bible knowledge when it comes to evangelism. And you know what else we don't need? We don't need to be intimidated by what we perceive to be a lack of skill. You know, you, you know, maybe you're someone this morning who believes that for a Christian to be effective when it comes to winning souls for the Lord, now that means you've got to be a really, really good teacher. That means you've got to be like the Apostle Paul. You've got to be like Peter. You've got to be like Apollos. You, you have to have mastered being able to go through a, a five-lesson workbook series that's been written by a preacher somewhere. Maybe you believe that you even got to do all the teaching when it comes to winning souls for the Lord. Maybe that's your mentality. If so, then go back to John 4 and think about that Samaritan woman again. Think about how even though she wasn't a preacher, even though she wasn't a, an apostle, even though she wasn't some traveling evangelist, like Paul or Philip, she still was a very effective soul winner for the Lord, wasn't she? She still was someone who did what she could when it came to trying to win her countrymen. In fact, all she really did, when you look at verse 29, all she really did was offer a simple invitation. That's all she really did was invite people to go in and investigate Jesus. Her example reminds me of something else we find and the Gospel of John in John chapter 1. Do you remember John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42? Remember what happened in those verses? Remember how in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, there we can read about Andrew helping his brother Peter begin his journey to Jesus by just offering him a simple invitation, didn't he? 
All Andrew did to help Peter was he told him to come and see. Come and check out Jesus. Come and investigate Jesus. Come and see if Jesus is really the Messiah. That's, that's all Andrew did. Andrew offered his brother a simple invitation to come and investigate Jesus. And once Peter took him up on that invitation, do you remember who taught Peter the gospel? Do you remember who taught Peter the word of God? It wasn't Andrew. It wasn't his brother. Instead, you know who it was? It was Jesus. It was the Lord. Andrew did the inviting and Jesus did the teaching. You know what that's called? That's called team evangelism. That's called disciples working together to win souls for the glory of God. That's something that we can do today. That's something that you could do today. Today, you could be like Andrew. If you don't have a lot of skill in teaching like Andrew, you could make the initial contact by inviting someone to come here and worship God with us. And then you can pass them on to someone who may be skilled in teaching. You don't have to do all the teaching to be an effective soul winner for the Lord. You don't have to be intimidated by what you perceive to be a lack of skill. But maybe you say this. Maybe you say, Sean, my problem is not Bible knowledge and it's not skill. Instead, my problem is the possibility of rejection. It's the possibility of confrontation. And the possible reality that after I invite somebody to come here and worship God or sit down and have a cup of coffee with me and study the Bible with me, you know what they might say? They might say no. They might reject my invitation. They might get mad at me. They might even stop being my friend. They may not want to be my friend anymore once they realize what I believe religiously or that I'm a member of the Church of Christ, a church that a lot of people say believes are the only ones going to heaven. They might completely shut me out of their lives when they realize I'm a member of the Church of Christ or when they realize how rigid I am in my moral beliefs. I want to show you a scripture. I want to show you a scripture from Acts chapter 5. You know, if you are intimidated by possible rejection when it comes to evangelism, I want you to know this problem is not new, okay? I want you to know that this problem of rejection and persecution is not new for the people of God. Christians 2,000 years ago were dealing with this as well. In fact, the rejection and the persecution they faced went far beyond somebody telling you, no, I don't want to study the Bible with you, or no, I'm not going to take you up on that invitation to go to a worship service. Instead, in the first century, the early Christians faced, they faced mockings. And they faced imprisonments and threats and even death. Here in Acts chapter 5, we find all of the apostles, all of the apostles being arrested by the Jewish leaders. They're beaten, they're mocked, they're ridiculed, they are threatened. And even despite all of that, notice what the Bible says in Acts 5 verse 41. It says, so they, the apostles, went on their way. From the presence of the council rejoicing. Notice they rejoice that they have been considered worthy to suffer 
to suffer shame for his name. Notice how the apostles did not allow rejection and persecution to stop them from preaching the gospel. Do you see that? They did not allow those things to intimidate them and cripple them when it came to evangelism. Instead, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they could suffer for Jesus because they understood that when people rejected the gospel, they really were not rejecting them. Instead, they were rejecting Jesus. The apostles understood that. But maybe you say, maybe you say, well, you know, my, my, my problem is not with the possibility of rejection. Instead, here's my problem. My problem has to do with baggage. It has to do with baggage. You know, maybe you're the kind of Christian who is intimidated when it comes to evangelism by all of the baggage that the people of the world may have in their lives. For example, maybe you work with somebody on your job who is not a Christian, and they're also in an unlawful marriage. They're in an unlawful marriage, that we, like we talked about last Sunday. They're married to somebody that they're not bound to. Maybe you know some people like that. They're currently living in adultery, and you say, there's no way I'm ever going to be affected trying to win those people. You, you, you say those kind of people, they're never going to change. People who are in unlawful marriages, they never, they never get out of those situations. Or maybe you have a classmate who's a homosexual. Maybe you have a classmate who is currently in a relationship with somebody of the same sex, and you say, I would never be effective in converting them to the Lord. You say that there's no way they're going to change. There is no way in a million years that anyone ever changes from that lifestyle. No one ever gives up homosexuality to follow Jesus. No one ever stops living with their boyfriend or their girlfriend to follow Jesus. No one ever gives up going to the club or to the bar on the weekends or a transgender lifestyle or atheism in order to follow Jesus. Maybe you find yourself thinking those kinds of things all the time. Maybe you find yourself being a spiritual soil inspector. Maybe you find yourself judging hearts all the time. Maybe if you were alive 2,000 years ago and you came across somebody like Paul or Zacchaeus or this Samaritan woman, you would have been the person who said there's no way, there's no way those people would ever change and become followers of Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you fail to realize that when it comes to converting souls, the power is not in you. And it's not in me and it's not in any person. Instead, you know where the power is? It's in this gospel. It's in the precious and sinless blood of Jesus Christ. Paul makes that point in Romans 1 and verse 16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, there are many other things we could put on this slide, but these are five things that my wife and I talked about a few days ago, and we concluded these things are stumbling blocks for a lot of Christians. 
These things cripple a lot of Christians when it comes to evangelism. These things intimidate and instill fear in the hearts of so many children of God when it comes to doing the most important work in the world. And so here's the real question. The real question is, how do we overcome these things? How do we practically rise above these things? How do we rise above the things the devil uses to try to disable us and rob us of the joy that is found in trying to win hearts for Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you some practical things to take home, okay? Let me suggest that if we want to overcome the things that intimidate us when it comes to sharing our faith. And the first thing we got to get is this. The first thing we got to get if we're going to rise above these kinds of things is we got to get some zeal. You understand that? We got to get some zeal. We got to start getting very excited and passionate about the Lord and his work. You know, there is still a lot of things after 15 years of, of full-time preaching there's still a lot of things I don't know about being a preacher. There is still a lot of things that I don't know about what it takes to be an effective communicator of God's word. But you know one thing I do know, one thing I have learned over the past 15 years is when it comes to people, when it comes to human beings, people, human beings generally talk about the things they're excited about. Have you ever noticed that before? I see that all the time. I see that especially when it comes to grandparents. Let me tell you something. You want to get a grandparent to take their guard down and talk to you and, and relax a little bit? You want to get them to do that? You know, you know, you know what you have to do? Is only got, all you got to do is one thing. You know what that is? Ask them about their grandkids. Ask them about their grandkids. In fact, just... Just ask them, do you have grandkids? And if you do that, you know what's going to happen when you do that with a grandparent. They're going to pull out their billfold. They're going to pull out their purse. They're going to pull out their phone. And they're going to tell you a hundred things that you didn't even care to know about their grandkids. And then how it goes? Grandparents are very passionate about grandkids. And if you don't believe me when I say that, go find your grandparents today and find out firsthand. People are passionate about the grandkids. And you know what else people are passionate about? They're passionate about politics. You ever notice that? Passionate about sports. They're passionate about their hobbies. They're passionate about the latest gadgets and gadgets that have been made by Apple. You come across people, even people in the church, and they usually have no problem talking with you about those kinds of things for as long as you want to talk about that stuff. People usually are very zealous about the things that they know a lot about. They're very targeted about the things that interest them. That's how it works with most human beings. And since that is the case, if we're really all in for Jesus, if we really love Jesus, if Jesus is really the most important person in our lives, like we claim all the time, then we also shouldn't have any problem talking about him. We also shouldn't have any problem being zealous about him. You see, we'll zealously talk with people all day long about Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Fox News or CNN. 
then we shouldn't have no problem at all talking with them zealously about Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Like grandparents talking about their grandchildren. Talking about Jesus should be something that we are eager to do. It should be something that we're excited to do. It should be something that we should naturally be able to do. You don't need a training class to be able to talk to people about the Phoenix Suns, do you? You should need a training class to talk with people about Jesus. You may not know Daniel chapter 11. You may not know what Zechariah is all about, what Revelation is even all about, but you at least should know what Jesus is all about. You should at least be able just to sit down with somebody and tell them the basic things about Jesus that he's talked about all throughout the Old Testament and that he was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life and he loves you and he performed miracles to confirm his identity and he died on the cross for, for their sins and he was raised from the dead and he was seen all over the place after being raised. That should be something that we should be able to just pop out like nothing. We don't need to be trained to do that. We should be excited about that. We should be passionate about that message because that's the only message that's going to save people. I'm going back to what happened in John chapter 4, John 4, 28. This woman had just learned about Jesus. She learned he was the Messiah and she left her water pot and she went to the city and she said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They, the men, then went out to the city and they were coming to him. In verse number 39, it says, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. Notice how this woman's passion, her excitement about Jesus, it was contagious, wasn't it? It was contagious. This woman was excited about Jesus. And she inspired other people to be excited about Jesus. If we do that same thing today, we're going to get the same result. We're going to rise above intimidation. We've got to get excited about what we're doing here. We've got to be zealous about the work of winning the loss. And you know what else we need? We're also going to need some prayer. We're going, we're going to need some prayer. Someone says, well, preachers always offer prayer as a solution to our problems. Well, the reason we do that is because according to the Bible, prayer is the solution to, to the vast majority of our problems. The Bible says we need to pray. We need to pray about evangelism. We need to pray about the fears and the things that may be intimidating us when it comes to this work. The Apostle Paul did that. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, please. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 19. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 19, Paul said to the church at Ephesus, after encouraging them to pray and to persevere, he says in verse 19, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, pray for me when it comes to me teaching the word of God. Now look at Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. The Bible says in Colossians 4 and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keep an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison, that I may speak, make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Notice how even though Paul was a powerful presenter of God's word, 
Even though he was an apostle, even though he was someone who received direct revelation from the Holy Spirit and he had the power to perform miracles, he still requested prayers when it came to his work. He still requested prayers from the brethren when it came to his work. He still requested prayers for open doors of opportunity and that he would be effective when it came to going through those doors. His example reminds me also of what I find in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, when after Peter and John had been arrested and persecuted by the Jewish council for preaching the gospel. The Bible says that after they were released, they went and found some other Christians and they prayed. And after they prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with, with boldness. Notice how when it came to the things they were facing in that time, the things that may have intimidated them, the first thing they did, the first thing they did is they prayed about it. They prayed with other Christians about that. They prayed that God would be with them and to help them overcome their fears and the things that intimidated them. And after they made that prayer, God let it know, let them know that he heard them. The place was shaken and they then had the boldness to go out and continue preaching the gospel. You see that, don't you? They prayed. And I want to suggest we got to do the same thing. We got to pray about this more. Even in our public assemblies when it comes to the things that may be intimidating to us and the things that may cripple us, when it comes to doing God's work, we got to pray. We got to pray about this alone. We got to pray about this together. We got to pray about this together fervently. We got to pray for courage. We got to pray for confidence. We got to pray that God will give us these open doors in Phoenix, Arizona, and that we will be effective when going through the doors. We got to pray that God will help us trust him. We got to pray that God will keep us humble. We got to pray that God will help us always understand and be sold on the fact that the power to save souls is not found in us and in our quote unquote ability, but it's found in him and it's found in his gospel. We got to pray if we're going to rise above these things that intimidate us. And you know what else we got to do? We also got to get some eyes like Jesus. We also got to walk around in our daily lives, seeing the people around us for who they truly are. You know, about 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, there was a movie that came out that was called The Sixth Sense. Y'all remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? You remember what that movie was all about? Remember that movie was about this little boy who every day in his life, he was seeing ghosts. He was seeing dead people all the time, and on many occasions, these dead people, they didn't even know they were dead. They didn't even know they were ghosts. In fact, the big twist of the movie, spoiler alert, and if you haven't seen it yet, you're probably not going to watch it by this time. <laughs> but the big twist of the movie has to do with the fact that this boy's counselor, this boy's counselor that he talked to every day and, and, and that he spent time with every day, the whole movie, he was a ghost too. 
He was dead too the whole time and he didn't even know it. That little boy was seeing dead people all the time and the people didn't even know they were dead. And I like that because it reminds me of us, but in a spiritual sense. It reminds me of the fact that we're also around a bunch of dead people, spiritually dead people, and they don't even know it. And so what does Jesus tell us to do about that? Well, in John 4 and verse 35, after that Samaritan woman went back to her village, Jesus said to the apostles who had a problem with him speaking to Samaritans, he said this to them. He said, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Notice how there in that verse, Jesus is talking about eyes. He's talking about vision. He's talking about spiritual vision. I believe here in the context, the Lord is saying to the apostles that you need to lift up your eyes and notice all these Samaritans who are heading our way right now because of the testimony of that woman. There are lost people right here in Samaria. You need to notice those people. That's what Jesus is saying there. He's telling his apostles to put on some spiritual goggles. And that's what we need to do. Like the apostles, we need to open up our eyes here in the valley. We need to put on some spiritual goggles. We need to start seeing how the vast majority of people in this part of the country, they are lost. They are dead. They are spiritually dead. And they don't even know it. We got to help them. We got to help them understand the truth about themselves and the solution to their problem, which is only found in the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, this brings, brings us to the last thing I want to say this morning. We're going to be done. And that is, if we're going to overcome the things that intimidate us when it comes to sharing our faith, we've got to develop a sense of urgency. Urgency. I want to put this on the slide because I have a fear that for so many people, even God's people, we really don't have that. We really don't have a sense of, of urgency. I fear that when it comes to the lost around us, we don't realize that tomorrow it's not promised to those people. Tomorrow's not promised to me. And it's not promised to you, and it's not promised to the people we know around us. All of us, any of us, could die any moment. I mean, if we have learned hopefully anything from the past year, over a year, hopefully we've learned that, right? Hopefully the events of life have taught us and reminded us that we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how we're going to die. Tomorrow's not promised to any one of us. And because that's so, we got to get up and get a sense of urgency when it comes to trying to win people that God loves. Paul makes that point in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. There Paul says that now is the acceptable time. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. I'm going back to John 4 and verse 35, and there Jesus says, Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Do this right now 
and look on the fields, they're white for harvest. Notice how according to Jesus, when it comes to trying to win the loss, now is the time. Today is the day. Today is the day to get busy in the harvest. Today is the day to invite that neighbor to services. Today is the day to try to set up a Bible study with that classmate or with that co-worker. Today is the day to try to motivate that family member who's not a Christian to come and hear the word of God. Today is the day. Today is the day to get serious about the things that may intimidate us when it comes to evangelism. We've got to overcome these things with the help of God because I'm going to tell you something. I want to tell you something. Just like I learned with Whitney 20 years ago, there is no better feeling in the world and there is no more important thing we could do for anybody, anybody, than help them come to Jesus. We have a responsibility to help people get their souls right with God. In fact, maybe you're here this morning, and, and that's what you need. Maybe you need to get help. They need help getting your soul right with God. Maybe you realize this morning that you're not living right, that you need to come to the King, Jesus Christ. If so, then I want you to know that if you haven't, learn anything from this lesson. I hope you can at least see that that's what we're all about. We are serious about that. We devoted an entire lesson to talking about trying to reach people like you, people who need the gospel. And so if there's someone here this morning who has a spiritual need, who needs help getting right with God, let us help you with that right here and right now. Come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing together.